This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Dawn French, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you so much for having me, Cheryl. I can't tell you how excited I am. There isn't a person that I've told that I'm speaking with you today who hasn't just gone, oh my God, oh my God. Um, There's a lot of love in Australia for you and you probably know that. Dawn French has been making people laugh for 30 years as a writer, comedian and actor. She has appeared in some of Britain's most long-running, cherished and celebrated shows, including French and Saunders, The Comic Strip Presents, Murder Most Horrid, The Vicar of Dibley, which I think is one of the um, most popular shows here. Her number one best-selling memoir, Dear Fatty. Do you know I remember selling that on the shop floor? Oh, do you? Yeah, because I was a book. That's right. I was a bookseller. Um, It was published to critical acclaim in 2008. A Tiny Bit Marvellous, her first novel, was a great success, going straight to number one and selling over a half a million copies. Because of You is her fourth novel and was an instant Sunday Times bestseller. I mean, you know, I and, and, and we will get to that, but I'm often in awe of how you do everything. I mean, there is so much going on there. But firstly, I want to start where it all started. Tell me about your life, the early days and how you came to telling stories really, because you're doing that through television, through film and through writing. Well, I wish there was some kind of coherent uh, journey that I could explain to you, but I seem to think that my life is a sort of series of happy accidents um, that landed me in a career that I love Um, but didn't really plan on in any way. So when I was a kid, um, I had a fairly nomadic uh, uh, childhood because my dad was in the uh, Royal Air Force. Mm. So we moved around a lot. My family are based in the southwest in England, in Cornwall and in in Devon. Um, But because we were on the move all the time, I never quite knew where home was. Home was really where your parents are. And when your dad's in the RAF, you are posted to different places, sometimes um, every three months, sometimes every six months. So really the longest you stay anywhere is mm, 18 months at the most. I think I went to seven different junior schools as a is kid. That, is that hard on friendships, like developing friendships? and Definitely is. And very, um, uh, it's, it's, it's a strange old uh, uh, experience because you... You know, although you're in your family unit, you don't know who's going to love you at the next place or not love you. So what I think I developed was a kind of personality fireworks display that I would put on everywhere I went in order to achieve 
groups of friends. And I think I used to try and make people laugh so that they would love me and not hate me. And you realize when you arrive at some of these schools when you're a kid that, um, you know, the kids that live in that village where you're going to school are very used to REF kids coming and going in a few weeks. So they don't bother to make big friendships. Well, they want to, yeah, they don't want to make an investment. Do you think, I mean, I guess being funny is very, very likable, isn't it? So it's a good kind of tactic in a way to make friends, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it is. I mean, I, I'm not sure that you can, I'm not sure that you can um, fake it. Actually, I, I don't think I ever set out to be funny. Uh, what I think I did was just an extension of what was going on in my family life, where my dad was a very funny guy. And I, I now realise I didn't know that, except for I knew we all laughed a lot. Um, my brother's funny. My mum was quite funny, although my mum was more of an audience to the rest of us. And even that was, you know, a delight. If my dad and I could do funny walks around the room or, or do funny impressions of people that we all knew, including family members, you know, to make my mum laugh, there was nothing more delicious than that, than to extricate, you know, laughs mm. from my mum. It was, was so satisfying. And I think that that's what I've always wanted to do is just make the people around me relax and be the person... Who, who makes them laugh the most, if I can. Mm. It, but it's an odd old thing, that, because then it's expected of you. Mm. And actually, I'm quite, um, I'm quite a serious person in lots of ways, and I'm a bit of a kind of functioning introvert who is happier in my own company than in, lo- in the company of lots of others. And that seems to be common for comedians, <laughs> isn't it? Yes, yeah. I think so. Um, you know, it's not surprising, is it, that, you know... No. Introverted people want to make sure you keep people just, you know, just at the right distance and keep everybody happy. But you're very happy to slink back into your own space, which is where writing, of course, for me, fulfilled everything because I was, you know, in my head with lots of characters and lots of company, but all made up by me. And and somehow, <laughs> as, as a reigning control freak. <laughs> Tell me, were you a good reader? Was I a good reader? That's a good question. Do you know, in spurts, I was. Mm. I had very good teachers. So um, when teachers gave me books to read, I was obedient and I would read them. I read Moonfleet and I read The Kids from One End Street and I read uh, The Hobbit. And, you know, I read the books we were given to read at school and I was always glad that Mm. I did. Um, You know, you'd sort of think, oh, this is homework. I've got to sit down and do this rather than being outside or with a pony or eating chocolate or whatever. Uh, But actually, I was always really glad that I did. It took a lot of concentrating to read. And I've got quite a flighty head. So in order to concentrate for that long, I have to give myself some peace and quiet. and, And I know this. And I used to do it as a kid. It used to always be at night under the covers, with a torch, that kind of reading. Loved comics, loved, you know, anything that was more kind of graphic. I think I I had a kind of slightly kinesthetic brain that could connect to pictures very well. But any books that I read, I was always glad that I did read them. And I I now sort of regret that I didn't read more. Oh, well, you've still got plenty of time. Um, (laughs) You can always go back to it. So when was it? um, So was it in high school? When was it that you were starting to think that this is my path? Uh, Never. Absolutely never. never. (laughs) The path that I thought I was going to go on, I did start to go on, which was to teach drama. 
Yeah. Um, and that's what I trained as. I think it's because I had a bit of a sort of uh, crush on my drama teacher, a wonderful woman called Christine Abbott, who taught me at secondary school. And I just thought she spoke beautifully. She was interesting and informed and funny and um, engaging. And I, so I begged my parents to book extra classes after school with her so that I could be in her in her company. I just wanted to be her without sounding too creepy about it. Um, you know, and, uh, and so she had gone to Central School of Speech and Drama or Screech and Trauma, as we like to call it. And so I, I applied to go there and I did go there. And at that point... Because she encouraged you. She did encourage me, although, right. of course, it had changed so much since she'd been there. Yeah. And, and I think she had an inkling that I was more of a performer yeah. than a teacher. But I wasn't having any of that. I went off and went on the teaching course and I am a qualified teacher as it happens. Uh, but I didn't pursue that job for longer than a year or so because when I started to teach as a probationary teacher, um, I met Jennifer. And then, you know, that and that, and that was that, you know. You know, we, we have characters. Oh, I, I want to go back to Jennifer, but we have something in common. I trained to be a teacher. Ah, did you? Yeah, I did. But it was, I think, my second year or third year of prac, I realised that I didn't like children very much. <laughs> well, you sound like Jennifer, who was also on the same course but had no idea why she was on it and certainly didn't like oh, children. Oh, so you met and I, at, at, I remember when she was quite young and she did teaching practice. Don't wow. know if you did this thing where you have to go, you're not quite a teacher yet, but, you know, they put you in charge of kids and she was at quite a rough school in South London and I my school was on a break at that point so um and I was also doing teaching practice but she begged me to come and help her because she had no interest in it and the children were just running rings around her yeah she was just one to do hairdos and that was well that was the beginning of my career because I was on one of those pracs and the teacher pulled me aside and said you know, you might want to go and work in the bookshop upstairs. (laughs) That was a a hint. And I did. And that's how I'm here sitting here talking to you. Yeah. Are you a giant reader then? What's your, what's your passion? Yeah, I've, I've, I'm a giant reader. I mean, I've never written anything. And then I was lucky enough to make reading my business. And I am so lucky that I get to read and recommend books. I've got a, a few people that do it with me now. But, yeah, that's that's how I came to be. But you're right. You don't know when you're in high school that that's what you're going to be doing now, do you? You don't know anything. I mean, I, I literally went to that college to train to be a drama teacher, met her, um, then we sh- and we shared a flat together and made each other laugh a lot. And because she had no intention of being a teacher, no. you know, she, in a way she opened a bit of a door to me because she needed to get a job. There was a job available at the comic strip and it meant that we had to perform sketches every night. But of course they were sketches that we'd written. So even though we were improvising and kind of condensing the improvisations, we were writing um, and we were working out what writing was so when I came to writing a book the first book I wrote which was an autobiography um I had already done writing but it wasn't this kind of writing but I didn't do that thing that I think I could so easily have done which is reject the idea of being able to write or feeling unworthy or feeling ill-equipped or something like that because I'd already started to do it and so I didn't 
allow myself to believe that it was not something open to me. Tell me about your friendship, those early days with Jennifer Saunders. Was it that, you you know, because finding friends for, for introverts must be difficult, but even for somebody like me who's not an introvert, just finding a connection sometimes or somebody that you click with. Talk to me about that. Well, uh, the first day I went to college, um, I was late uh, going to college because I had to go two weeks late because my dad died. And so I really want to go to college. Thanks. I didn't want to go to college at that moment, but my mum insisted. And that was very wise, actually. Mm. So I arrived at college dripping with grief, but trying to pretend I was everything was fine. You know, just jolly. And these people that I was meeting didn't know all about that. So it was a chance in a way for me to kind of be distracted. And the very first day when I arrived, they'd already been going for two weeks. So my worst nightmare was happening all over again, which was that people had their own little friendship groups. So I knew I was going to have to put on the display again and try and worm my way into somebody's little gang. And I remember walking into the first class that we had, that I had, and it was a movement class called tumbling. Imagine, why do you need that? I know how to tumble, thanks. Uh, But it meant you had to be in a leotard. Oh, God. Oh, God. Could you feel? Just dreadful. But anyway, I wandered in in my ill-fitting leotard just feeling so self-conscious and there was a room of people who were slightly less self-conscious because they'd been doing it for a couple of weeks and on the other side of the room was the, the very beautiful Jennifer and I saw her but she was surrounded with her group of slightly posh very elegant and rather beautiful clever girls and I remember thinking that's not my type that that girl is not my type she, she she's too posh for me and they look very set in their ways over there they're all already set up I'll go over here with a few more cheerful slightly more friendly people and that's what I did for a while so when a mutual friend suggested that we move into a flat she told me that um there was a room for me but this other girl was joining called Jennifer and I thought oh not her god um but because I needed the flat so much I just thought oh well I'll deal with that um, and then we, when we moved in, that's when I finally got to know her and thought, God, I'm, I'm the one who's had all the prejudice actually here. I've seen you and assumed that A, your class, if you like, it, you know, to be crude about it, your class and your beauty um, um, somehow negate me being able to be your friend and that was my decision not hers she's perfectly friendly and perfectly okay but and actually I was wrong about so many things she's quite shy in lots of ways um and is awkward socially so she wasn't standing over the other side of the room being all confident she was standing over the other side of the room because somebody over there had accepted her like all of us you know and the minute I got vulnerable loved her you know and we're both from RAF families which which is a shared experience that binds us many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out my solution is plush care plush care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey they can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. 
To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. If you reflect on your careers together, what do you think is her strength versus your strength or vice versa? Do you know, it's funny. I think, I think this, there are different strengths, which I'll tell you about, but I think they've changed over time. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's of interest to me. I think we've taught each other quite a lot, funnily enough. So, you know, you slightly mould yourself differently depending on who you're around. But her strength is a kind of mm, natural confidence that she has. Um, she is not a stressor about stuff. She doesn't get anxious much. And if she does, say we're doing a show in the evening, say we're doing that. Jennifer won't think about it until 10 to 7, if we're due to go on stage at 7 o'clock. She might put some makeup on and whatever, but she's taking phone calls, she's reading things, she's, you know, doing anything else. At 10 to 7, she will start to panic um, and realise, and she gets a big rash that comes up her neck and she's very, suddenly she's, she gets the fear. Whereas I've had the fear since I woke up. And... <laughs> And so by seven o'clock, I'm in control of it and I've slightly exhausted myself with it and I've accepted that that's what we're doing and I've thought about it all day. So we are yin and yang, you know, really in that way. Um, But I really respect how she doesn't waste lots of her life being anxious about stuff that I probably am. I'm a bit of a worrier, a bit of a catastrophizer, um, whereas she isn't so much at all. Mm. Okay, so then... When did you write your first book? So your first book was a memoir, right? Yeah. And what yeah. brought you to that? Why, you know, what possessed you to think that I'm going to sit down and write long form? Because, you know, that's not easy. No. Well, I absolutely hadn't intended to do that. And certainly not an autobiography because I'm quite private in lots of ways, although it wouldn't seem like it now when I've done shows about my life and I've done books about my life and whatever. But I, at that point, I wasn't. But a strange thing happened to me, which I wouldn't wish on anyone, actually, um, which is that someone wrote a book about me. Uh-huh. And the person who wrote the book is a pretty awful journalist who worked for the News of the World and the Daily Mail over here. And her job was to write these unauthorised, fairly cheap, badly written, in my opinion, um, biographies of, of other people. So I had this bizarre year where everywhere I went in my life, either my family would be very anxious and saying to me, oh, God, Dawn, somebody's called us and she's called this and she's said that, you know, she's writing this tribute to you. And I said a few things and then I realised I shouldn't, I should ask you. So I came across people worried in my family. I came across people worried in my local flower shop, in my, from my school friends, you know, everywhere I went, this woman had been. And she was sort of picking around in my life. I didn't like that. I didn't know her. And when I started to try and find out about her, she wasn't particularly a good quality writer. And I just thought, oh, this is going to be some awful book. And there's nothing I could do to stop it. It just rolled out. And Did then she, she made. You? No. 
She didn't. And I think she knew that she would get short shrift from me. Yeah. Uh, but she tried to come close into my sort of inner sanctum of people and got fairly far in. Uh, but people very quickly kind of realised that, you know, this is not right uh, without calling me first. And that's protection. It's not defensive. It's just people being protective. And I didn't like that that kind of intrusion came into the lives of others that I can't look after, really. Um, and then she did a really bad thing, which is that um, I have an adopted daughter. And of course, when you adopt a child, it has to be the choice of that child if they ever choose to try and reconnect with a birth family. That you know, That's a kind of thing that you handle very carefully. It's very... Uh, you know, it's a multi-layered relationship that you have and it's to be. a private family matter. Very private. And yeah. this woman who was writing the book about me went charging in, looking for birth certificates and was clearly on the hunt for, I don't know, the birth mother or something. And I was, and my daughter was nine at the time. And oh. that absolutely infuriated me because, you know, when you adopt a kid, there is another person, which is that birth mother that you you know, you include in your family, even though you've never met them, you don't know them. Mm. But I I cherish her and value her and I, I'm here to protect her privacy. And it's part of the contract, if you like, that, you know, these, these two women and this child will look after each other forever. Mm. And I w- couldn't look after her because this awful predatory, clumsy twit was clomping about in this, you know, very delicate area. Isn't there a kind of an agreement or a silent agreement between journalists and, you know, famous people that children are off limits? Is there not You would think. You would think, wouldn't you? Yeah. You would. But she was prepared to write a chapter about this adoption and she wanted lots of facts. And she, I, I don't know how she got them, except for that luckily for me, some legal people got in touch with me and said, look, this person is sniffling about and we need to protect you. So what I did, I I went to a high court judge and got an injunction, you know, which cost me a fortune. But it meant that she had to stay away from my kid. That was all I could do to protect her. But the experience of this, um, not just with my daughter, but she wrote inaccurate, careless stuff about my family, which upset my mother so much. And of course, you know, when your mother, again, you know, I felt so awful about the fact that my mum's life was being intruded upon in this way. And my mother was absolutely furious and so hurt and wanted to go to court about it and whatever until, you know, we had to sit with some lawyers and who explained that my mum would be pulled apart in court just to prove a point. And I just didn't want that. So anyway, this woman had sort of bullied me. Uh, that's what it felt like, being bullied by someone you've never met who takes advantage of you and makes money out of your story that is inaccurate and awful. And then, lo and behold, you know, you're doing gigs and people bring her book to me to sign because it's the only book that they can get hold of. So it was at that point I thought, okay, what I have to do, and it annoyed me because it was like being flushed out, if you like. I wasn't ready to do it actually. But, you know, the fate, I guess, intervenes. And I thought, well, I have to put the record straight and write my own story then. How old were you at the time around? Oh, gosh. Oh, I'm so bad at remembering things. Yeah. Uh, Maybe late 30s, maybe late 30s. Mm. So I had enough life to write about, if you like, and I Mm. could, and I decided to write Dear Fatty, which was my autobiography. And I decided to write it in the form of letters 
to everybody that was important in my life or even just people that I had a crush on, like the monkeys or, uh, you know, or, or Madonna or whoever. Oh, your you know, drama teacher. <laughs> or my drama teacher, exactly. Yeah. But I mainly was writing it, the, 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 the backbone of it was letters to my dad who had died. Um, and I wanted my dad, who had died when I was, and took his own life very sadly, but well, I was 19 when that happened. So I wanted to explain my life as if I was telling my dad all the stuff that he didn't see. And it was a kind of connection between me and him, if you like, and a chance to put things right and a chance to write. And even though when I took it on, it was a kind of act of vengeance, if you like, I very quickly settled into it and realised that being on my own in a room with a pencil and a pad of lined paper, which is how I write to this very day, was a delight it was privacy, it was freedom, every construction of every sentence, every chosen word was my choice. Now, you know, you'll always have a bit of a rub up with the editor. You know, that's the point of them. Yep. You know, you're always going to have a moment when you, you know, when you, when somebody guides you a little bit. And I'm very lucky that I've had very good editors, both for that book and my novels. Um, people that I respect and admire and, you know, can take some advice from. And so when I'd written that book, and, and luckily for me, it did very well. I just thought, oh, I love this. I, I actually, I didn't think I was going to. So, you know, in a way, I've got something to thank that awful woman for. <laughs> which is a- Do you think that writing a memoir or writing an autobiography is a bit like writing a CV, or maybe you've never written a CV, but sometimes when you put, for me, like when I have done that in the past, you look at it and you think, wow. Have I done all this? Is that how you looked at writing your autobiography? Yes, I think I did. I mean, we don't take time, do we, to reflect? I mean, interesting things happen when you write an autobiography, which is that you tell your truth, which is wholly your truth, although, Mm. of course, you edit in order to protect people or to perhaps not uh, reveal too much about, you know, from people's lives that they may not choose to. But I realised that I could upset people very easily. Mm. Members of my family who don't see certain people in my family the way I do. I see my, I had a good granny and an evil granny. An evil granny was very funny to me because she wasn't my mother. She was my granny. So I was able to, you know, look at her through the telescope of time, distance, everything else, and and be able to draw her as quite a caricature, which she was to me, which I, I loved her very much, but she was very badly behaved person, um, you know, who wanted to lead us all off the straight and narrow. But to my uncles, that's their mother. So, you know, you tread on uh, dangerous ground. Well, also, do you have siblings? Because I know with my, like, I'm one of six, right? And none of us have written a book. But when we're talking about our upbringing, it's a different version. I'm often surprised at what my sisters are saying about what happened, because my version of that is very different. And you yeah, well, we, we are different people, so we come yeah. at life differently. And I realised that, you know, unsurprisingly, that the kind of uh, the view I have of something is nearly always through a comedic veil. Yeah. I, I uh, align things but, and I temper stuff that way because I think it makes things difficult things more palatable, if you like. Yeah. And I think I've always done that. I think that's been my family's way. And so that's how I write and that's how I see life. And it's not always the same for mm. other people. So it makes you wonder what is the truth, actually, doesn't it? Mm. That's a whole other book. But anyway. Yeah. 
<laughs> Tell me how you came to writing fiction, because again, that's completely different to writing your own story. It is. And it th- that was a surprise to me. I did, you know, although I'd written sketches and stuff before, um, I hadn't ever decided to write a book until the, the autobiography. But then what happened was because that book did well and because, you know, it was deemed to be well enough written, um, then I had publishers coming in and courting me to try to write fiction. So I signed a two book deal with Penguin and that became a four book deal. And I've just signed another two book deal with them. Um, and I've settled into a group of people that I like very much there who've got a lot of faith in me and give me quite a lot of freedom. And so I started to write fiction, see if I could. I didn't know if I could. And interestingly enough, my first book, which was called A Tiny Bit Marvellous, I wrote in the form of diaries, diaries which four characters wrote. So, you know, a mother, a daughter, a son. Who's the fourth one? Gosh, it's such a long time ago. Anyway, it's four characters writing diaries quite often about exactly what we've just been talking about, about the same event. And you see the different points of view and you see a story unfolding and you see characters unfolding by the fact that they write diaries, which are personal, you know, very personal. So you're seeing the interior of them. But nobody had um, dialogue with other people really at all unless it was reported. So I'd written letters. I wrote diaries. The next book after that I wrote, my main character was in a coma. This book was called Oh Dear Sylvia. And the main character was in a coma, inert. So people had to come into the room and speak in monologues. So again, they're not really interacting. And I You're practising on your readers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think I was trying to find my voice and I was also <laughs> rebelling a bit against a kind of classic narrative. I was trying to have a different way of talking. I was using my improvisation skills or my characterization skills. Um, but I think I was a bit afraid of going that next step. Um, and then I did in According to Yes, which was my the, the book before this one, I finally wrote chapters and people talk, <laughs> talking to each other. And I loved it. And I thought, okay, actually this, this takes a bit of concentrating, but I like it. And that's why this book, you know, which is called Because of You, is further uh, narrative like that, more formal, really. Uh, it reads very personally, if you like. I mean, fiction often does, but, you know, uh, there are so many, you know, it talks about motherhood, it talks about mistakes, it talks about regret. Do you, where does that come from? Well, I suppose mm, I start with myself. Yeah. Um, this is not autobiographical, this book, in any way, but it is personal, you're right. And I am writing about things that I fear the most, which is getting motherhood wrong or making mistakes that uh, my kids might have to pay for or whatever. I guess those are things that I fear. Mm. So I want to uh, mine that very rich theme of my own fears. And if I wanted to invent a character who would be very difficult to forgive, but who we have to forgive by the end of the book. That was my challenge to myself. And so I thought, what, could, what would be the worst thing that a woman could do? And that is steal another woman's baby. And I thought, well, we'll never forgive her for that. We will never forgive her. But I thought, yeah, that's, that's my job. I have to write a book where this woman, for various reasons that, we, that unfold, and because her brain is fractured through grief, through losing her own child, takes this baby. But once she's taken the baby, she goes into that deluded place where 
this is her baby. Mm-hmm. And so she raises that baby beautifully. Um, and then, of course, 17 years later, that baby is a young woman mm-hmm. who finds out what's happened and her whole world falls apart. So it's about the, the consequences, if you like. And it's about forgiveness, of course, and it's about love for mothers through daughters. And it's about women are the main event in my books very often. And it's about empathy, I thought. It is. Yes, it is. Mm, mm. It's about trying. Yes, you're right. To wrap your understanding around somebody else's uh, uh, choices. And I wanted to make sure that there were sacrifices in this book and there was regret um, and there was support between the women and 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 I hope that's what I've managed to achieve it it hurt to write this book Mm -hmm. you know because it's quite serious in some ways of course I'm never going to write an entirely serious book of course I'm going to write funny characters of course there's going to be ludicrous situations they get into of course I'm going to enjoy writing characters got a particular way with language or something like that but ultimately I'm trying to write a book that will engage viscerally from my heart to yours and it does tell me what's your favorite medium is it live is it film is it tv is it writing do you know uh, i'm really sorry to be a fence sitter so much that i've got splinters up my bum (laughs) um i would say it's whatever i'm working on at that moment i love the thing that i'm doing so much and then i think oh it's time to start writing yeah. And then I write and I think, I love this. I love, oh, it's time to start to get back out on stage. So literally, I just, it's sort of cyclical, really. I just do something and then I like the look of that other thing beyond the fence and I go to that. So whatever I'm doing at that moment is my favourite thing. We're lucky, aren't we? We're lucky we do something that we love with absolute passion. Oh, definitely. Mm. And I do not take that for granted for one second. Mm, same. Okay, well, I'm going to let you go um, because we have just <laughs> talked <laughs> for at least 30 <laughs> minutes. Well, um, I could do it three times as long, but I know we haven't got that time. But it's yeah. so nice to speak to you, Cheryl. Oh, same. I mean, I just feel that it's been such a privilege. Thank you so much, Dawn French. My pleasure entirely. Thanks. Thank you. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere. Or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello 
HelloFresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.